So go ahead and flip to your Bibles, uh, in your Bibles, to Genesis 3. And uh, I have three passages for us today. Genesis 3, Psalm 110, and then Acts 2. And um, those, out of all the things that we could have done with eschatology, I, I was tossing back and forth several passages to look at, but these I sort of just landed on. I'm going to sort of do mostly a 30,000-foot view of eschatology. We're not going to get into hardcore Greek grammar of Revelation 20 and all these other passages. Um, that, that'll be for another day. I wanted to take a little bit of a different approach on it, so um, just so you know on that. So Genesis 3.15, Psalm 110.1, and then we'll look at Acts 2.29 through 33. So let's look at those texts, and then we'll pray, and we'll go from there. Genesis 3.15, these are the words of God. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, this is God speaking to the serpent, by the way, in Genesis 3, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then Psalm 110.1 says this, The Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then if you want to flip to Acts 2. Acts 2, 29 to 33. Acts 2, 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of, Christ, of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his, his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all, we all are witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we've gathered on this beautiful day here today that you have made, a beautiful day that you have made in order to worship you, to be challenged by your word. Uh, and I, I pray, Father, that you would meet with us here so that we might be stirred by your Holy Spirit. May our, may our worship here today and tomorrow and the next day be pleasing to you. Father, we thank you that Jesus has been established as the world's rightful king, and we pray that the nations would bow before him. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Today we're going to talk about eschatology, and in many ways everything that we've been saying so far in this series has led us, led us to this point. It's led up to this point. The, the very last message, which, we'll, which is going to be on culture, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about culture, and that'll be sort of the capstone of the entire series. But um, we'll do that in a couple weeks after our little uh, conference speaking journey that we're going on here. Um, but thus far in our series, we've talked about infallibility, the infallibility of God and, of course, His Word of Scripture itself. Uh, we've talked about the triune God, the doctrine of who God is, the aseity of God, um, who He is in and of Himself, uh, Him being perfect and complete and whole, not lacking anything. We've talked about uh, creation, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of providence that goes with that. God made the world, God sustains the world. 
And, and so uh, there's, there is no global warming crisis that's impending as much as the politicians would like to urge you in that direction. Um, and the reason is because God sustains the earth. He sustains it for his purposes. So humans can try to abort history, but they'll ultimately fail because God is sovereign. We've also talked about the doctrines of man, who man is, and the doctrine of sin, and how those things play out. We've talked about Christ, Jesus, and the atonement as being the solving, uh, the problem-solving effort of this issue with man and, and sin. We've talked about covenant theology. I think we were here that week. We talked about covenant theology uh, here in the barn. We, we talked about God's covenants and why it matters what a covenant is and why history is defined by God's covenant dealings. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we covered the ecclesia, the church of God, and uh, why the church is what it is. And last week, we talked about the law of God. And so with all of those key doctrines, uh, all of those key doctrines are, of course, very much for the growth and development of Christendom and history. So we have doctrinal beliefs for a purpose, for the growth of, of Christendom. We need to know who God is. We need to know who we are. We need to know what God is doing in the world. That's why we've been doing this series. Um, so all of that's true. But in one sense, though, eschatology is the doctrine that is woven through all of them. So that's why I say everything we've been doing is sort of leading to this point, because eschatology is a doctrine that is basically woven through all of the other doctrines. So we might say that eschatology is the rebar that unites them all. It's the rebar that holds the building up. It's, it's in everything. So this concrete building's got rebar, that's the eschatology. Uh, so what I mean though is that basically we can see the development of all these doctrines in history and in scripture, and the key word is development. So hang on to that word for a second, development. Eschatology is development. It's development. It is about augmentation. Uh, to, to augment something is to improve upon or to make it better. Eschatology is about augmentation. It's about redemptive alterations and changes and shifts. Um, it's also about theological trajectories, where certain themes in Scripture are going, like Genesis 3.15 and the promise of enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Where is that going in history? That's eschatology. It's also historical orientation, how you view history. Where is history going? Where has history been? Um, I would point you to the uh, series I preached. It's in book form, too, but have yourself an eschatological Christmas. Um, the intersection of the past and the present and the future and how we should think about time. And we went through a lot of that there. That's why I didn't want to rehash it today. But I would point you in that direction as well. It's also about societal adjustment. Societal adjustment. Um, one of my favorite things is, well, if I have a neck issue, maybe I slept wrong or I you know, used it wrong, however, and you go to the chiropractor, and, and my favorite noises in the world is just that <laughs> And um, it's, I love it. I could hear it all the time. That's why I crack my knuckles too much. But um, I like it because I know after that I'm going to feel better. And I always do. <laughs> Inevitably, I always do. But think of a society that needs a chiropractor. Eschatology is the chiropractor of society. It's a societal adjustment. God moves in history, and he adjusts things, as we'll explain in a minute. 
Now, eschatology, uh, in its proper etymological context, what does the word mean? It simply means, in one sense, last things. When people talk about eschatology, usually it's, well, how is the, when is the world going to blow up? <laughs> sort of these apocalyptic, dystopian nightmare um, scenarios where nuclear holocaust and all these things that we think the future is going to look like. Um, but it's, I think that definition is somewhat misleading to just say it's about last things. It's really not primarily about last things. The word eschatos in Greek, according to one writer, he said this, he said, it means the end point of a continuously conceived succession of circumstances. So the end point of a continuously conceived succession of circumstances. So things happen in history, sort of like a spiral repetition. You know, you would think that America had, would have learned the lesson of Nazi Germany. Your papers, please. But we haven't learned those lessons, so we have to go back and relearn them, apparently. So it's this continual succession of events and circumstances that happen. So it's not so much primarily about the end of time that we normally what we call the end of time and what will happen at that point in, in history. Rather, eschatology is about the constant reframing and readjustment of history through God's sovereign interventions. I'm going to say that again. Eschatology is about the constant reframing and readjustment of history through God's sovereign interventions. So God's interventions are eschatological alignments which provide the contours of history. So I'm trying to think of another way to say this. Essentially, as, as human beings exist and live and move and events happen and take place and so on and so forth, um, those types of things, God intervenes in them. That is eschatology. So sometimes, sometimes we have a basic continuity in history. There's, we'll call it continuity. Other times we have discontinuity. And what I mean is sometimes God does in fact work inside. We, we don't believe in a closed universe. We believe in an open universe. We, have, we aren't closed off on ourselves so that God can't possibly intervene and we're in charge of history and what things, how things happen. The issue of continuity and discontinuity means that God works inside the open universe that he has created. And sometimes it's through the miraculous. Think of Jesus walking on water. Okay? Think about the resurrection of Jesus. That is a discontinuous type of thing. Dead, in other words, it's not dead people don't just come back to life. Okay? That's a, an anomaly in, in that sense. It's, a, it's not a normal historical pattern. But God intervened. Jesus was raised from the dead. He was resurrected. Um, he, it wasn't just he was resuscitated like Lazarus. No, he was resurrected. He was changed in that sense. And other times we see this basic cause and effect, reap what you sow. So if somebody is mad today and they go out and they, with their bare foot, kick a post on the fence really hard, what will happen to your toe, children? You may break it. It may bleed. It may be bad. That's called you reap what you sow. You decided to invest in that moment. It's economics, really. You invested in p making your anger and your frustration come out by 
taking your toe and lot, trying to lodge it inside the piece of wood, okay? And when that happens, we understand physics, we understand how, what happens. You break your toe, something hurts, you start limping, and then you feel like a fool because you let your anger come out in that way. That's reaping what you sow. That's cause and effect. Those things happen in history. Now, there is a real-time feedback in history, and we kind of talked about it a couple weeks ago with covenant theology, but that God provides essentially what we call sanctions. Sanctions for obedience, sanctions for disobedience. So that's the feedback system. That's how we know how things are going. And of course, when we look around at our current circumstances and we see the utter degradation of culture, God is giving us feedback. And the feedback is we are failing miserably. miserably. So think of it this way. You have this sliding scale. When the church, when the church is on fire, preaching the gospel, engaged in cultural issues, statism goes down. But when the church is lazy and apathetic and does not care about justice, what happens? God gives sanctions. Now we have statism. They want to control everything about you. They want to control what they put in your body. They want to control where you can go and who you can hug. If that's not totalitarianism, I don't know what is. But that's the sanctions that God gives us in in history to let us know how we're doing. Now, my point in bringing this up is simply to say that eschatology, in some sense, is the application of covenant theology in history. So eschatology and God's interventions are simply the, the application of the covenant that God has instilled with creation in history. Now, you guys have heard in the Bible there are the phrase, the day of the Lord. There were several day of the Lord events which were the judgments of God in a particular time and at a particular place. So in 586 B.C., the Babylonians conquered uh, the southern kingdom, destroyed Jerusalem, and hauled them off as um, plunder and slaves. That's when you get the story of Daniel and so on. Um, A.D. 70, within a generation just like Jesus predicted, the temple was destroyed. Rome, led by Titus, who came in, Millions were dead. The temple was raised. The city of Jerusalem was on fire. God had brought his sanctions against a disobedient people. So all of those judgments in history were, in fact, those things, these are days, days of the Lord, that dovetail with the final day of the Lord, which is the final judgment when God sorts it all out. So we do believe in a final eschatological event. God's not going to destroy the earth and the world with nuclear holocaust, okay? He, he is remaking the world. That's part of the process. And in remaking the world, God does bring judgments. And all those judgments lead to a final judgment when God will set it all straight. Everyone is raised to resurrection life. The believers are separated, the sheep and the goats. The final separation of the sheep and goats ha- takes place. And of course, the meek, God's people, will inherit the earth. So we will live on this earth forever in an eternal state of community with God. That's the final new heavens and new earth. So historical judgments are basically like breadcrumb trails leading us to the final judgment. Now, the eschaton. The eschaton is thus not just one final event, but it is events in history that reveal the saving activity of God. 
events in history that reveal the saving activity of God. You think about America. What would save America right now? Repentance, right? If America, by and large, repented, I'm talking from Biden all the way through, all the way down. If America repented, we would see a massive shift in our culture, a massive societal readjustment. Talk about a chiropractic adjustment. Repentance would do that. But repentance is a grace of God. God's Spirit gives it to us. And right now, we are being judged, and God's giving us over to our lust. So we're not getting repentance. We're getting a whole lot of sexual sin. We're getting a whole lot of perversion. We're getting a whole, whole lot of abortion. We're getting a whole lot of statism. And we're getting that because we've hardened ourselves, and God is giving us over to those judgments. So in other words, when God saves and acts in history through his covenant judgments, time itself is marked out by God, and those time markings are eschatological events. So that's why the Bible repeatedly says things like, the time is fulfilled. Remember when Jesus says that in Mark 1? The time is fulfilled. It's an eschatological statement. The major eschaton in the New Testament, led by John the baptizer, was the coming of the Son of God as the Son of Man in the person and work of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. So there's this link between God's saving activity and his judgments. They go together. And both of those are in space and in time. So eschatology, rather than being about the end of the world, is actually more about God's historical moments, we might say, of deliverance and judgment. That's what eschatology is. All right, let's look at our text real quick. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from the very beginning of time, God drew a line in the sand. Human history would be marked out by antithesis. This great antithesis would stem from the problem incurred in the garden with Adam and Eve. And we talked about this recently, but I'd like to emphasize it again. History is marked out by two warring seeds. Two seeds are warring against each other. Two descendants. And they are, of course, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That is, the children of Eve who are in covenant with God, who obey God, versus the people who are covenant breakers, who are all children of Satan. That's why Jesus says to the Jews, who are, they kept saying, our father's Abraham, our father's Abraham. He says, no, your father's the devil. He is, he is referencing this passage. They are all children of the devil. They are seed of the serpent. That's what history looks like. This eschatological antithesis is set forth this moment on in history, and only in Christ do we know that it's dealt with completely. So the enmity that's between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed would in fact mark history. So everything you see going on around you right now, you should be thinking, ah, oh, yes, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. That's what we see happening. There's a war that's taking place in that enmity that God put there. But of course, this judgment, this wrath from God would be appended in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So history moves from wrath to grace. And so the promise in the garden here in Genesis 3 is that a particular seed of the woman would in fact crush the head of the serpent. He would do this. It's a promise. Uh, many theologians call it the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel promise. That was a promise. This would happen. The seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. 
Now we also know, though, that the serpent would lunge forward and strike that seed's heel. And of course, that seed's heel was Jesus Christ. And we know that on the cross, and the cross and the resurrection, Jesus would mangle the serpent. Welcome, bud. <laughs> Jesus would mangle the serpent. The serpent would strike his heel. Jesus would die. But the resurrection is the crushing of the serpent's head. Now flip to Psalm 110. 1. Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord, that is Yahweh speaking, says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, or I put your enemies as a footstool. Now, fast forward from Genesis 3 to the time of David. David ruled around 1000 BC, just to give you a time reference. Fast forward to the time of David. Psalm 110.1, along with like Psalm 2, Psalm 72, they're, they're called royal psalms royal or kingly psalms. Psalm 110.1 is a promise given by God to David, and specifically, though, it was given to David's son. It was Yahweh, the covenant Lord, who said to David, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David did rule at the right hand of God as the king of Israel. And in fact, enemies were taken care of during his time. But that's not merely a prophecy about David. It's something greater. You see, the New Testament, which, by the way, the New Testament quotes and references this verse more than any other verse from the Old Testament. More times than any other verses are this, is this verse referenced in the New Testament. The, the New Testament says this is about King Jesus. Yahweh says to David's Lord to sit and rule the world. So think of you're David. God says to you, to your Lord David. David was a king, but God is actually using David to say, actually, your son, your seed, is going to sit and rule the world. Yahweh says to David's Lord to sit and rule the world. We know from 1 Corinthians 15. You want an eschatological passage? Go there. I almost included that, but I didn't. I think I had the time, but 1 Corinthians 15, we know there that Jesus is ruling and reigning until his enemies are fashioned into this glorious ottoman on which he can put his feet. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 25, one of my favorite passages. He is ruling until his enemies are made a footstool. And theologians call this the mediatorial reign of Christ. So ever since Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, please get this. Ever since that moment, he's been seated on David's throne in heaven at the right hand of God. And from there, he rules the nations with a rod of iron. Now, I'm, I'm emphasizing this because there are theological errors, in my estimation, that don't believe that Jesus is ruling and reigning now. John MacArthur says he's in voluntary exile, but he has to come back to be king. That's not the emphasis here. He is ruling and reigning right now. He's ruling with a rod of iron. So once his enemies are defeated, and by the way, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us when is that going to happen in history? The last enemy to be defeated is death. When is death defeated? At the resurrection. There will be no more death. That's it. So all of history is marked by Christ ruling over his enemies, making them a footstool, Okay, President Biden 
is an enemy of Christ. He's an enemy of Christ that will be subverted. And there are tons of conservatives who are enemies of Christ too. And they too will be footstooled. Okay, so the, the divide isn't, you know, left or right. The divide is covenant keeper, covenant breaker. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. That's the divide in history. But Christ is ruling and reigning right now. And after he is done squashing all of his enemies, he will turn the kingdom back over to the Father. And of course, we know the kingdom will never end. Now, go to Acts 2. I'm not going to read the entire passage again. But I wanted to deal with this passage mostly because it lays out for us how the apostles in the early church thought about the kingdom of Christ. Um, I've said this before, I'll say it again. The New Testament is basically your apostolic study Bible. It's the study Bible notes for the Old Testament. They tell us how to read the Old Testament. Hebrews tells us, uh, Keith and I were talking about that earlier. Hebrews tells us a lot about how to read the Old Testament. How should we understand it? So it's almost like the New Testament are the footnotes in your study Bible for the Old Testament. <clears throat> so here in this passage in Acts 2, Peter, he connects the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday to another event, the ascension of Christ. Jesus died, he was raised, spent time with his disciples, and then he ascended to the heavens. That was uh, recorded in Acts chapter 1 for us. So he ascended there, and David says, um, says Peter, David's dead. Everybody knows this. Just look over at his tomb. We know where his tomb is. It's here to this day. However, David, Peter says, was a prophet. David was a prophet as well in that he knew that God had made a binding and legally binding oath with him. David was told that he would in fact have one of David's grandbabies sit on the throne. Second, second, uh, 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. God makes this promise. David, one of your grandbabies is going to be on the throne. I promise. I'm going to build a house for my name. I'm going to build your house. So Peter says that, would, when, uh, that what David was told pertains to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So the resurrection in Peter's mind from Acts 2 was the enthronement of Jesus. That's the moment he became king. That's what he's arguing here in, in, in Acts 2. So God raised him from the dead, sat him down on David's throne, and began his millennial rule right then and there in the first century. That's when Christ was crowned king. I mean, it's literally exactly what David's arguing here from Acts 2. And, I, and I'm pointing this out because we're not waiting for Jesus to come back and be king on the earth. He already has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's Matthew 28, 18 to 20. He already has all authority. We're not waiting for him to come back. That's not what Revelation 20 is, is about. Emberly read Revelation 20. Revelation 20 is commonly called the millennium passage because it talks about the thousand years. And this millennium is the millennial rule of Christ as king and lord of the world. That's his mediatorial rule that we just described. So Peter tells us that it started with the resurrection of Christ. Revelation confirms the same thing. In the, in the dispensational model, by the way, I grew up a dispensationalist, scared of the rapture, was ready to get off the earth as soon as possible, just waking, waiting for that escape pod to show up, and then I could go. In the dispensational model, Jesus has to return to the earth after a, a seven-year apparent worldwide tribulation, and in this view, Jesus sits on a literal throne in literal Jerusalem, 
But the question is, where in the New Testament do we have the apostles claiming that Jesus isn't Lord now, but instead becomes Lord and King later? We don't. Acts 2 is one of the perfect proof texts of it. They assert that Jesus is King today. He's been established as King, and he currently rules as Lord right now. So what the Old Testament promised, the New Testament affirms, this is the new situation. Christ is King. The nations need to bow. You need to go and tell everybody about it. That's the New Testament. Now, one thing we need to consider when it comes to eschatology pertains to the provisions that God has granted to man. At the dawn of creation, God put a plan in motion, and that plan was eschatological. It's, everything's eschatological in this sense. It was a plan for history and the exaltation of the Lord at the center of history. That's what God intended to do when he created, created everything. God put man, that's us, in his, made in his image in the world, and the telos, the goal of man, was and is his dominion in the world. We talked about that in the man and sin sermon. So God made us in his image to rule on his behalf. That's what we were called to do. So God, he, he gave, made the world, he gave it to us, and he said, look, go exercise servanthood dominion over it. Grow, grow crops, you know, eat, make business, you know, develop technology that's not, you know, totalitarian, <laughs> like the all-seeing eye of technology today. So quite, quite literally, the eschaton was placed in the hands of man. So as God's eschatological people, by nature and being, that's what we are. We are eschatological people. We labor for the purpose of the kingdom in and around the world, exercising dominion for the expansion and the growth of the knowledge of the Lord. So that's why I said earlier that eschatology has to be connected to covenant theology. As workers in God's vineyard, we are either laboring for the Lord underneath his comprehensive lordship or... We're trying to establish ourselves as a bunch of arrogant little lords saying that history is what we make of it, not what God makes of it. And of course, depending on how we respond, God will bring his sanctions to us. He's either going to bless it or he's going to curse it. That's Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. So as the commander of this army called the church, God gave us his law so that we might do what it says for the blessing of the nations and the growth of history. That's the point. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit, and I promise that I'm not taking us off into the weeds here, though it may feel like it. <laughs> Earlier, I mentioned that eschatology is about progress. It's about redemptive trajectories. It's uh, the augmentation or the betterment of society, the betterment of history, and so on. And, and I mentioned the phrase social adjustment, because God will adjust us accordingly. And I use these word pictures because eschatology is incredibly important. Oftentimes, people will avoid the discussion of eschatology because, oh, look, guys, we can't talk about this. It's too divisive. It's too divisive. And you know what? It's ultimately unimportant. Most people are pan-millennialists. It'll all pan out in the end. I didn't come up with that joke, but that's funny. That's what people think. Ah, God will sort it out. And we just sort of never talk about it. It's, it's, too, it's like politics. You can't touch that. It's too, too, too bothersome. Why bother? Some avoid the subject altogether because of varying opinions, while others will pull out their charts very excitedly and show you with enthusiasm, this is where we're at, and this is where the rapture is going to happen, and, and this, I know who the Antichrist is. It, ha it was Obama. It's got to be Biden now. 
and they will, they will be very happy to show you their charts and how they've predicted the end of the world. They get excited about the rapture index, which is a real thing that tracks how things are going in the world, the likelihood of the rapture, when is it going to happen next. So you either have people that don't care or people that are mm, wrong and care a lot. <laughs> but we need to make sure that we don't lose sight of what really matters, and that being the fact that eschatology, in one sense, is really the air that we breathe as Christians. It's the air that we breathe as Christians. How you view the future depends on how you live in the present. I know of people who said, we are not having any children because the rapture is happening tomorrow. How they viewed the future literally affected how they lived in the present. Because it does. Anyone who tries to suggest otherwise, I think, is delusional. How you think the future is going to unfold shifts how you live in the present every single time. As I've said before, look, even Karl Marx insisted upon his eschatological vision. He had a vision for the future. He believed that certain things could take place, that a utopia could be had, this, um, this communistic utopia that could be had through force, through the confiscation of property and your labor and um, through taxation and ultimately through the the great struggle of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. He had a vision for the future. Many Christians don't even have that. Today, many Christians have been paralyzed by the government's response to the so-called pandemic. They saw what took place these past two years, and they truly believed that the end of the world was coming. There are still churches that are closed. Still. They have a vision for the future. They thought all of this was going down and it was just going to end. It was just going to crash and burn. We might as well throw our hands in the air and surrender. This is what we've been preparing for. That's the mindset. And my response is typically, well, it's not the end of the world. It's just the end of your bad eschatology. That's what it's the end of. But the point is, eschatology pertains to the unfolding of history, the direction of cultures and societies based on God's law, and it sets forth our purpose within God's plan of redemption. So it's not so much that we need to try and figure out the end time events. Who's going to be the next Antichrist? When's the end of the world coming? When will we know the tribulation is going to begin? People are just so drawn into this, and, and this dispensationalism has dominated this American country for so long. And we've had many predictions of the end of the world. You know, the book 88 Reasons the Rapture is going to happen in 1988. He had to go back and write the sequel. 89 Reasons why it's going to happen in 89. You know, people, recent predictions from people, um, I forget his name, it just slipped my head, my, my mind there for a second, but everybody's always making a prediction. And they're going to keep doing that until they repent of their silly eschatology. So we don't need to figure out these events, what is often erroneous prognosticators based on guesswork and arbitrary guesswork and things like that. It's not that. It's that God has given us his word and his son, and he intends to accomplish his work of redemption in the world. That's our default assumption. Our assumption is that Christ is king and God's going to do something with history. Not crash and burn, but he's going to redeem it. That's the point of what redemption is. Um, God's plan for the Great Commission 
His plan for the Great Commission plan is for it to work. It's supposed to happen. We're supposed to disciple all the nations, and they're going to repent, and they're going to come to him. That's our default assumption. So historic optimism, or what we call post-millennialism, is rooted not just in exegesis of Scripture, but it's rooted in the very nature and the purpose of the gospel itself. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Repeatedly, we see in the Old Testament, places like Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Either that's going to happen, or it's not. We also see places like the Christmas promise, Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government, the rulership of the universe, shall be put on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, quote, will do it. Passages like Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 speak of the latter days when the mountains of the house of the Lord, that's the church, what we learn from Hebrews, shall be established as the highest mountain and people will come to this mountain and they will desire to walk in the paths of the law of God. At some point, people are going to have to stop and say statism doesn't work. It's not working. It's never worked. Let's go see what God has to say. That's going to happen in history. And of course, Genesis 3.15, the, the promise there that the gospel solves the enmity within human race when Christ smashes the head of the serpent. Psalm 72, 2, um, may he have dominion from sea to sea. I don't think it's verse 2, by the way. I think I um, typed type this up wrong. But may he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Psalm 72. Isaiah 65 and 66 speak of the new heavens and new earth. The new heavens and the new earth, which is the new order of salvation in the world through the advancement of the gospel in history as the church militant marches along towards victory. That's what the new heavens and new earth is. So the purpose of biblical eschatology, as far as the writers of Scripture are concerned, is to underscore the fact that God became a man, not only in order to save the human race, but to be established as the King and the Lord of the nations. And this fact of Christ's enthronement is to be celebrated, not explained away. Well, he's, he's kind of, I've heard this before, he's kind of Lord right now. He's in a voluntary exile state. He's up there in heaven. He's sort of Lord. And we can call him king, but he's not actually king yet. He has to come back to the earth. So don't explain it away. Embrace it. Peter says he's raised. He's sitting at David's throne. He's Lord. That's Acts 2. Just take it at face value. When Peter says he was raised, he was established as Lord, just believe that he was raised and established as Lord. Very simple. So we are to obey it, not ignore it. And the Bible is clear. Jesus died, he was raised, he was enthroned, and all the nations are now to come to him to be saved, to be healed, to be obedient to his law. So sort of wrapping up here, eschatology then is not merely a topic to be studied, but it's actually a message to proclaim. It's not merely a topic to be studied, it's a message to be proclaimed. It is the victory of Christ in history that we proclaim it is the victory of Christ that we disseminate into the world. Moms, you're raising immortal souls who are to be trained into war against the enemies of Christ. 
So yeah, you're just a mom. That's no big deal. <laughs> you have children to raise, to train their hands for war, so that they can have victory over the, over the enemies of Christ. So, with pens and shovels and swords for self-defense, and or 9mm Glocks, whatever your choice, um, you children, listen to me, you children, you are here and you're supposed to know Jesus, you're supposed to know Jesus, and then you're supposed to man your battle stations. That's your task, that's your job, that's the aim. Know who Jesus is, Know what's expected of you from God. What does God require of you, child? That's the question. What does God require of you? And then you're to grow into that calling, being future fathers and mothers and abolitionists and, and business owners. So I just told you the answer to life. You're welcome. That's the key. So the heart of our gospel pro proclamation is the victory that's inherent in the message of Christ. We're not polishing brass on a sinking ship. We're not moving Adirondack chairs around in the front porch of a house that's actually on fire. Are there times of tribulation? What do you think the past two years have been? <laughs> Are there times of distress? Are there times of consternation and frustration? Are there seasons of life in your family where you think, will this ever end? I see some of you back there with your little ones. You may be feeling that right now. <laughs> Are there times of difficulties? Absolutely. No doubt, but those things, the difficulties prove the victory of the gospel because those things are covenantal signs that God is active, he is present in our world, he is shaping and molding and promoting his truth on his timetable. How could you possibly be a post-millennialist? Look at what's happening in the world. And I would say, how could you not? Look how involved God is in bringing us to our knees to repentance. See, instead of looking at the world and saying, my goodness, things are so bad, we should say, world, look how victorious the lamb truly is. David didn't look in Goliath and think, man, he's so big, I'll never win. Instead, children, David looked at Goliath and said, he's such a big goof, how could I miss? How could I miss this guy? See, this attitude of cultural engagement, which is coupled with a robust understanding that Jesus is alive and well and reigning from heaven, that is the only eschatological position to hold, and it's the only one that advances the kingdom. It is the recipe for gospel success in a world that has fallen into the ditch. And the question is, are we going to help them out? So may it be said of us here at Cross and Crown that these people really do believe that Jesus is Lord over all. They really do believe it. Let's pray. Father, we give this time to you. We thank you that we could gather here. In, in this barn and a place to meet uh, with a beautiful sunshine. Father, it's just a testimony to your grace. We're thankful. Father, help us to be a thankful and a grateful people. Help us to equip one another, to serve one another in love, as Galatians tells us to do. Help moms and dads to raise their children to be arrows shot into the dark world for the glory of Christ. We ask, Father, you would give repentance to our nation. We are in desperate need of it. Father, we are neck deep in sin. 
neck deep in transgressions. And Father, we haven't quite come to the place where we have repented, so would your Spirit give it to us? That we would see a reformation, a revival, God, but only those two R's start with the first star of repentance. Father, we, we've gathered here to fellowship, to eat together, to enjoy you ultimately and one another. Help us to be equipped this week in Christ's name. Amen.